Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside the MIDI midfield maestro and media executive, that's a lot of M's, Grail Howlett, and soccer journalist and OTB producer, Sam Griswold. Welcome to the show. Today on OTB, we check in with our old friend, uh, well, not that he's actually that old, I mean, he's my old friend, a uh, former teammate, U.S. Men's National Team defender, Desmond Armstrong. OTB is brought to you by Soccer America, the U.S. soccer online paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com, sign up for their pro membership, and buy Ticket IQ, the simplest and easiest way to buy tickets anywhere. Guys, another crazy week in the uh, country, in the world, really. Uh, what, uh, what are you over today on Over the Ball? Well, I'm, uh, I'm over the... Um the national anthem, our national anthem, taking on a disproportionate significance in the world of sports. I've been over it for a long time. I think it's, uh, it's been misplaced in terms of you're not a patriot if you don't, you know, salute to the flag and not take a knee and all this stuff. So anyway, I'm like, you know, if people cared as much about poverty and racism and stuff as they do about the national anthem, we'd be a much better place. By the way, I'm a huge patriot, but I don't need to sing the national anthem and stand for the national anthem to show my patriots. When I think the national anthem was only implemented in sports, sporting events in like the 40s, maybe? Well, or? it was baseball. It came out of baseball. It actually originally after World War I, and then it took on more significance after World War II, which was understandable because it was a real sign of patriotism. But I think over time, it's just taken on a disproportionate amount of significance to a lot of people. And again, if you, if you, if you don't if you, if you don't worship at the altar of the flag and at the anthem, you're somehow not patriotic. Again, yeah. I just think we need to move beyond that and care more about people and care less about the anthem. Well, I think there's been some hypocrisy out there because people who are pissed off at someone taking a knee in a you know in their uh, their constitutional right for peaceful protest. Uh, they won't wear masks. Uh, that would be a sign of patriotism to wear a mask yes. to protect your fellow Americans. So a lot of hypocrisy been out there. So, all right. So sort of a political um, uh, venting of you today. Uh, Sam, well, what do you have? Sports related political. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good one. I, I like that. I like that. Um, mine's going to seem maybe trivial by comparison, but uh, I, I'm over whatever this MLS tournament is that we're about to get, you know, this MLS is back thing down at Disney World. Um, that is so trivial, Sam. That is ridiculously <laughs> trivial. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I, you guys can call me a snob if you want. You probably will. But I, I mean, MLS is back. I, I didn't even remember MLS had started. You know, they'd only played <laughs> two games. Um, you know, I, I still don't really understand how the tournament's going to work. Some of the games are going to count for points in the league. And it just, it's so The cool. group stage. Yeah. I mean, every, MLS just loves these complicated new things. Like, every year it's a new thing, and I can never figure out really what's going on. And, and who is going to watch these games in an empty stadium? I mean, MLS is like a regional audience, you know? There is so much soccer going on over the next month. I just don't think people are going to have the bandwidth to care about this. So, right. good, luck to them. good luck to them. But, yeah. It's certainly surprising that I think you're still in your 20s because you sound like an 80-year-old sharecropper. <laughs> you're, you're just a, I'm telling, <laughs> not telling people to get off your lawn. <laughs> well, my sort of both of those issues where I just I, uh, I want to report the happy news that the Confederate flag can no longer fly at a NASCAR event. So finally, welcome to the, welcome to the 2000s, everybody. I mean, that was about, uh, about slavery, that, that the war of a you know it was basically they split from the union and basically uh because of slavery so uh that's what it represents to a lot of people and so to have that flag at a sporting event boy you can't take a knee in silent protest but you can bring an incendiary uh object like that i'm glad it's uh it's been done away with so, and okay, i want to give i want to give props Lenny, to my friend steve phelps a longtime friend who's the president of nascar for uh, taking a stand, because this is going to be very unpopular amongst a lot of the NASCAR base. They're going to push back. They're going to show up with flags. They're going to have to turn them away. So again, a very bold move by Steve and, and NASCAR. I think it's my great. dad. My dad used to say, "Do the right thing, not the easy thing." And yes. uh, I, I, it wasn't until college that I realized that my father hadn't made that up. Um, my friend was <laughs> like, "I think, I think Winston Churchill said that." I'm like, "Well, he probably got it from my dad." So, all right. Um, 
So a lot going on. Uh, the killing of George Floyd has sort of um, brought about a lot. Uh, Michael Bradley, I guess, had a quote. Grail, you have that? Yeah, well, Michael Bradley, like father, like son. And, and again, you know, you know, I've been critical of Bradley as a player, but as a, as, as a stand-up human being, I'm right behind him. He said, uh, I'll give you a couple quotes. Uh, we have a president who's completely empty. There isn't a moral bone in his body. Uh, another quote, I'm horrified, angry, disgusted, and embarrassed. We live in a world where black men, women, and children fear for their lives daily we have failed the black community. So good on Michael Bradley, who's played with a lot of black players over his life mm -hmm. on club teams, national teams, et cetera. Good on him to stand up and make a statement like that. I have incredible respect for him. Yeah, and his father had said some stuff yes. last week as well. So, uh, so yeah, good stuff there. And then the, the national anthem policy from the US, uh, US soccer is under review. Is it you know, still under review? They like, actually, no, they repealed it on Tuesday. The board of directors voted to unanimously to uh, repeal it. And that, of course, was uh, to get a little technical here. That was policy. I know you know this, Flinny, but it was policy 604-1, which said that required national team players to stand respectfully during the national anthem. Um, of course, Megan Rapino back in 2016 uh, took a knee as a sign of support for Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. um, her own national team coach, Jill Ellis, came out against her and mm -hmm. said it was, it was an individualistic, I'll paraphrase, move on her part. But, uh, you know, good on U.S. soccer, who I think is trying to do the right things with their new uh, group at the helm, um, to just say, you know, in the overall scheme of things, let our players are individuals, let's let them protest the way they want to protest. Yeah, there's, there's been a sea change that's happened. Uh, and Sam, you even, you were talking about the international effects of this. Uh, yeah, this yeah, for sure. Speaking of the kneeling on the Bundesliga this past weekend, um, there were several demonstrations before the games with teams kneeling uh, around the center circle before kickoff, um, which I thought was very neat. And um, yesterday, uh, in the German Cup game between Eintracht Frankfurt and Bayern Munich, um, Frankfurt actually wore a special jersey with hashtag Black Lives Matter across the front in place of their usual uh, advertisement, um, which was a pretty strong statement, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that jersey also sold out very quickly on their online store. So uh, that was cool to see, too. You, you know, it's the like I say, America is an interesting thing. We where we go, the world goes, and so for us to sort of be uh, our own little island, it just doesn't work that way. With the COVID situation, and now with this Black Lives Matter, it's it's spread across the the world. And every week, unfortunately, we seem to talk about a racial incident that's happening in soccer somewhere around the globe. Where we've been onto this, and if there's one thing I can be proud of, is is the our reaction as a people in this country yeah. and now how that's motivating others in, uh, in, in other countries now. And then also England's manager, Gareth Southgate came out and said that, you know, pretty much the same thing, you know, lack of players, lack opportunities at different levels. Uh, the racism affects them in lots of different ways in coaching and, and um, um, yeah, actually I have, stuff. I have the quote here sort of echoing Raheem Sterling has been very outspoken beforehand, mm -hmm. but he was commenting on, you know, the lack of opportunities for, uh, former black players to, to go into coaching or just black coaches in general. Um, but the quote from Southgate is, uh, the power of what is happening at the moment is that people are standing together and these observations, these deeper seated issues are rightly leading to the broader debate on opportunity, on privilege, and it's important to speak out. I do feel there is a moment for change, but I'm also conscious that we've been here before. Um, it's also right. important to hear from white voices because ultimately they are going to be in the positions to open up opportunity. We are the ones who have to be educated. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see the, I'm glad to see some coaches step up because, you know, I've been pretty critical of the high profile coaches who mm -hmm. haven't really stepped up. Uh, the, uh, the Mourinho's of the world who have kind of dismissed it and almost looked at racism in games, uh, you know, as being just kind of a distraction or an irritant or something like that. So, but again, you know, the players are driving the whole thing, right? It's like any, it's like any, uh, change that needs to happen is it's usually the workers or the players who are finally getting through to the owners who then have to come along because they have no other choice right. because the owners, whether it's NFL owners or EPL owners or whatever, 
have just, I just don't think they've really taken it seriously enough. And, and in fact, you know, if you look at the Kaepernick situation, they were on the wrong side of that, that situation. And Roger Goodell came out and finally apologized and said, we were wrong. Right. And I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah, part, been part of this, uh, this yeah. movement. The, Bu- the Bundesliga as well, Sam, huh? had some protests. Yeah, uh, I mentioned a few of those, but I was going to go back to the Premier League. Um, speaking of the mm-hmm. players, Grail, because the, uh, the team captains around the Premier League have gotten together and they're planning to wear um, Black Lives Matter on their shirts in place of individual names during the first round of fixtures, uh, which will take place next week. Um, that has to be, you know, approved by uh, the league, I, I, I think, yeah. and, you know, senior club officials. So yeah. there may be... Uh, you know, one or two more steps before that happens. But it looks like that'll be the case when they get it, back. It kind of almost reminds me of, you know, uh, Major League Baseball honors Jackie Robinson on a day where they all wear number 42. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I think it's 42. I hope I yeah, have it's 42. 42. And, uh, and anyway, so it's, it's kind of cool that every club and every player will have Black Lives Matter over their numbers. I think that's really, really a compelling way to, way to get the point across. Right. They just saw that movie, the Jackie Robinson story was on last night. I actually watched it and, you know, what that man put up with, what he had to deal with. It was just, just otherworldly. So, uh, and, uh, you know, so you spoke domestically with the NFL. I thought that was a sea change as well, Grail. What a difference, what a difference a couple of months makes because suddenly, uh, you know, Kaepernick, Rapino, they were ahead of the curve by far. And uh, the guy, basically they took his livelihood away. Uh, because he took a knee in a peaceful protest. And it was a minister who told him to take a knee because it would be more respectful. And then people just shooting off at the mouth. And, you know, like you talk about the Confederate actually, flag. Actually, yeah, no problem. Flinney, to be accurate, it was a Green Beret. Oh, right, whom right, right. he spoke who told him, which, again, totally contradicts this idea that he was being anti-American, anti-military, because, of course, his whole cause got hijacked and got made into a thing about being you know, uh, unpatriotic. Right. Um, you know, again, though, domestically here, uh, in the MLS, LA Galaxy dropped Alexander Katai. We talked about him last week. I'm laughing, yeah. but uh, I'm laughing because basically uh, his wife did him out of a job. So I think they're probably in couples counseling right now back in <laughs> Serbia, uh, talking it out. Oh, they were living God. the life in LA and, um, and his wife had to say something racist. So I like when racists are outed. Um, and so good for the LA Galaxy for getting rid of him. Um, little domestic news uh, with uh, Pulisic. They keep signing players. Uh, Grail, what are you thinking with Chelsea? Are you happy or you think uh, Pulisic's not going to get any playing time? So, yeah, I get, yeah, it is a domestic and uh, also EPL story, right, because it's our beloved uh, Christian Pulisic. Yeah, so they signed Timo Werner um, from um, Leipzig. And uh, the strong rumors were that he was going to Liverpool. Klopp had the inside track. It was, it was all but done. And then Chelsea swooped in and got him. And now you've, you know, now you've got, you'll have Timo Werner up top. You've got uh, uh, Tammy Abraham and you've got Pulisic. So I guess the questions are, you know, oh my God, is this going to bode badly for Pulisic? Actually, the way I look at it is it gives Frank Lampard the option to play all sorts of different formations. And I think Pulisic's going to be a big part of that team moving forward. Um, you know, he'll, he'll just have to be adaptable. But um, I, uh, I, I wouldn't look too much into it. To me, they've signed a great goal scorer, and it just makes the team better, frankly. Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at what's happening right now uh, on the injury front because there's been a lot of time off. You wonder how fit players are going to be. Yeah. Then they're going to be thrown into lots of games at once. Uh, from coming off of basically sitting down. And, and all of us know that you can train on your own all you want, but it does not recreate what you actually go through in a game. Uh, so your guys kind of maybe a bit soft being thrown into lots and lots of games. Uh, yeah, and, and, both, and both Pulisic and Abraham have been shown to be kind of injury prone. So, you, again, you can never afford to – to not have enough talent on the team because you just never know when somebody's going to be out for six to eight weeks. Yeah. I mean, Werner is more of a, a central striker. I think yes. you know, the bigger worry for um, Pulisic would be, you know, the ZX signing um, and also the fact that Chelsea are looking at both Jaden Sancho and Kai Havertz from Leverkusen. I mean, yeah. those are guys who would more, you know, directly affect his playing time. Yeah, it's not that it's not that that, that that Werner would be replacing Pulisic. You're right; they play very different positions. But again, 
you know, most, most uh, managers in this day and age play different formations based on the teams that they're playing against. So it just gives uh, Chelsea, I think, a little bit more flexibility. Let's see how Pulisic does too, because we haven't seen him play. I mean, obviously, we didn't see him play for a long time when they were playing and then COVID came. So he had an injury, I think a groin or a hamstring injury. So I think yeah, hopefully yeah. this is, gives him enough time. But to, none, uh, none of these transfers yeah. are going to go through till next season, right? Right. That's, that's right. right. Okay. Yeah, you got to right. finish the season, right? I'm sorry, Flynn. I was just going to say they paid that. To, essentially, Chelsea paid that like escape clause. Okay, yeah. Uh, to get Werner because yeah. he was under contract. So they had to pay a big fee to do that. Okay. Hey, but Sam, I thought of you, uh, Sky Sports Premier League viewers. Uh, they have the option of a second audio track with crowd noise. So obviously, the, the viewing public is split on this as well. So now they're actually giving you two different feeds. Uh, yeah, know. I thought this was interesting. So Sky in the UK anyway, are going to give viewers the option of listening to you know an audio track with crowd noise, which is actually going to come from the video game FIFA 20. So you'll just get that sort of generic background noise. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's cool. I like that you're given the option. I mean, I've said this before on the show. Um, when I lived in Italy anyway, which was 15 years ago now, um, you know, you were given the option when you're watching a Premier League game, you could listen to the audio in English, you could listen to it in Italian, or you could listen to it with no commentary at all. And I think those right. are all kind of cool. I, I, you know, I'm, I love that sound better. being pumped in, Sam. I, 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 it, I've watched games with and without the sound, and I've got to say, I like sound. I, I like I know, crowd yeah. noise. Yeah. Just, just give me crowd it. noise. I don't care what it is. Have Flynn yelling or something. That's fine. Yeah, no crowd noise would remind you of your playing career. So I think, um, but uh, yeah, I like it. And you realize how much you miss. I didn't think I was going to enjoy the crowd noise. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, that I, I, I dug that. Though, this, you know, the having, sound of the ball, the sound of the errant shot rattling around the seats is not uh, music to my ears. Well, it seemed like a training session, like a really cool, intense training session. So, uh, yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, talking about uh, MLS and players, uh, uh, Gatsa, do you think he's coming to MLS? And do you rate him as a player? Well, I don't know. I mean, so the news is that he's not going to re-sign with Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season. Um, the the first thing I took away with, I'm surprised he's only 28 years old. Show you shows yeah. you how long he's been on the scene. Um, but to me, he's sort of been this like perennial, you know, overhyped youngster who never quite, you know, made it to the level he should have. Um, you know, there's interest in him in Europe, too, in Germany and other places, as well as MLS, apparently. But I don't know. People are saying it would be like the biggest transfer ever to MLS. And no, I, I don't really? know. I mean, no, he, scored, no. he scored one no. incredibly important no. goal, obviously, winning the World Cup for Germany. But to me, that's sort of what he is. He's like a super sub. Yeah, he's a poacher. He's an opportunist. And sometimes that's not an impactful player. Uh, but if they could put that ball in the back of the net, you take him. I don't, yeah, I don't think he's a guy that's going to come over. I mean, I've got to be honest with you, versus like Zlatan, um, you know, who could come, who came in, you know, for all of Zlatan's antics, which, by the way, the three of us loved anyway, um, the guy came in and produced. I mean, Zlatan's production in the limited time here was great. I don't see Goetze coming in and being able to do something like that. Yeah. yeah plus, plus, he's a small player, small personality, too. You know, you uh, – Yeah. About he's, also had, he's also had a lot of injury troubles. Yeah, you know? the MLS is notoriously physical league. So, right, which which yeah. you, it's what you love about it, isn't it, uh, Sam? Uh, yeah. It's physicality. MLS uh, resumes play on July eighth, though, in Orlando. Uh, build is MLL back tournament is back tournament. So I think that's what you vented about at the top of the show. Yeah, yeah, I we know how Sam this. feels about it. <laughs> but you know, like you were, we were talking last week. You're going to have NBA players down there. You're going to have MLS players down there. Uh, players report to ESPN's Wide World of Sports for training on June 24th. So uh, maybe they should. I, have think, I think one of the I think I think one of the cool things, though, guys, is that uh, they are going to try. They're going to have because of the the nature of the stadium and how they're how they're doing this tournament. Um, they're going to have more cameras. Uh, they're going to have different angles. They want to test a lot of stuff. So that could, there's something from a production standpoint could, could come out of it that could be interesting. I'll be interested to see more cameras. I don't know what that, that – like one inside the corner flag? I don't know where else you need the camera. Well, look uh, – A know, referee camera? Are we going to have a ref cam? Are we going to have like a body cam? 
I will say this about the coverage of MLS. It's gotten worse and worse, I believe, is they don't have the, the teams, the broadcasting teams aren't at the stadiums anymore. They're using remote sort of, you know, cameras. And so I think maybe they can do a better production job if they have a centrally located, you know, field and cameras yeah. and set up. They don't have to break down and set up every week. So, uh, you know, again, well, let's look safety, for... Uh, I mean, for safety purposes, Flinny, you know, obviously you're able to test and do all that stuff. And remember, this is just a way to kind of jam a lot of games into a short period of time and then they come out of it and they resume the season and, you know, with some type of revised schedule but I think it was all about just trying to get as many games kind of I don't want to say out of the way but you know what I mean, I mean just right. basically play so in Norway Kevin you're saying in normal MLS games the announcers aren't even in the stadium yeah so well they were trying to do um remote remote camera stuff so you know people were oh, for, on for site these, for these games yeah yeah okay uh yeah so um all right one other thing I wanted to mention one of you guys brought up the story the Tim Howard story it's going to be made into a movie a film by Netflix Who's on yeah. that? Who saw yes. that? Yeah, no, yeah. So, so uh, it's interesting. They bought the rights to uh, the Tim Howard story. They're saying it's going to focus uh, on Tim's struggle with Tourette's syndrome, which is well documented. And it's kind of going to culminate with the 2003-2004 season with Manchester United. So it's covering kind of the earlier part of his, I would say, professional uh primarily professional career so but uh good news is it's the same producer who um did the film miracle which by the way if you haven't seen it about the 1980 olympic hockey team u.s olympic hockey team is a fantastic movie so i think it's a, I think it's in good hands um my question to you guys is who would you cast as tim howard so that was going to be my, so it's a, it's a biopic. It's not a documentary. It's a net Netflix bio. Yeah. It's a biopic. Okay, yeah. yeah it's, it's, well, yeah, exactly. It's a dramatic film. Okay. Yeah. So who would you cast as uh Sydney Poitier. <laughs> you know, I'm actually going with a politician. I would really? cast Cory Booker as Tim Howard. Hey, he's an athlete. Booker's an what athlete. Do you think? Man, played, what do you think? He, he played football at Stanford, man. He's, I know uh, he did. You know, he's got I know game. He did. I mean, because you have to have some resemblance. Yeah, yeah. I, so I think, uh, you know who I think should do? Michael B. Jordan. I was going to say, I was okay. going to say, he's a good actor, okay. too. Yeah. He's, he's a good actor. Right. So, uh, yeah. all right, guys. Well, uh, great show today we have coming up. Desmond Armstrong. Um, boy, you know, this guy's capped 81 times. Uh, great defender. Was on the, the national team for a long time. And uh, has also been working on sort of, racial injustice uh, and other issues, uh, trying to get African-American or black players uh, of American descent to come and play soccer more in the, in the cities, in the urban centers. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a good man. He's making a difference. And he's going to be our guest when we come back on Over the Ball. You listen to OTB brought to you by Soccer America and Ticket IQ. One of my favorite guests on this show on Over the Ball, the silky smooth defender, Desmond Armstrong. He had a storied eight-year run with the U.S. national team after starring in the University of Maryland, where he established himself on the national team after his performances in the MISL and the 1988 Summer Olympics. He played at every level of American soccer. He is now using his diverse talents to assist urban soccer programs and develop, uh, to help develop their young players. A U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame inductee in 2012. He gave a great speech, too. It's online. Check it out uh, if you want to see it. Uh, this man has capped an incredible 81 times. He is now leading uh, the program at Fisk University. Uh, my old buddy and old teammate, Desmond Armstrong. How are you, pal? I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good with all that's going on, COVID-19 oh. and so forth, and, uh, but I'm good. I'm good. I, I, I got to ask you right up front because we got some serious stuff to talk about. But the silky smooth defender, who wrote that? Did you, your mother write that? <laughs> That's a copy and paste. I don't know who put together my bio and it went on the, uh, I think the U.S. Soccer Players uh, website when that was put together. Somebody wrote that. I did not write that. I did not submit that. Yeah, right. Well, that's a good answer because you were a silky smooth defender. I used to say that like when I run fast, you can tell because things are moving. All You didn't look like you were running fast, but you were running faster than me. So <laughs> it was always annoying. You were a, a silky smooth defender. So um, 
a lot, a lot happening in the world. Um, so what was your reaction, your first reaction when you saw the, the video of George Floyd's murder? Uh, well, grief for the, for the yeah. most part, you know, some uh, reflection uh, back to my own experiences, not to that degree, obviously, um, because I'm still here. Uh, but, you know, what flashes in your mind immediately is all the times that I've been pulled over uh, just by way of, you know, traffic violations, supposed. Yeah. Um, whether that's on the, on the highway, whether that's on my street coming to my house. I live in a very, um, now a diverse uh, neighborhood in that it's being gingerfied. It used to be a very, very bad part of town in Nashville when I'm told historically, but now it's gingerfied. And even now when I come into this community, um, just coming home, you know, there's, there's a lot of profiling. So I'm right. followed, you know, straight to my house to the extent that I have to get out of my car and, and dialogue with a cop who's just followed me home, you know, two blocks. Right. So the immediate reflection for me was, you know, the incidents, not only for myself, for my sons, I have uh, three boys and two of them drive now and they've been pulled over um, in different states Wichita, Cleveland, Ohio, Indiana, not to mention all of our times that they've been with me when I've been pulled over in Tennessee, Georgia, Illinois. That's um, scary, man. You know, do you, you, you obviously tell your sons something about driving. No, no yeah. question. No yeah, question. That's, that's I have scary. to. You know, the first thing is when the cop pulls you over, you give them the, you know, the 411. Hey, you got to put your hands on the uh, steering, steering wheel if you can roll the windows down, roll the windows down so they can see inside of the car so there's no uh, inclination on their part to, to believe that uh, there's something more going on than what they already anticipate or imagine for the reason that they pulled you over. Yes, sir, no, sir. Um, quite honestly, you know, from the onset. And, you know, thankfully, to some degree, I don't know that it really protects them or not, but you know, they're articulate enough to be able to communicate even when they're wearing a hoodie sitting in the car with me in the uh, front seat of the passenger side. Right. Um, so that we can, you know, sort of explain where we're headed. Um, and then we're not, you know, we're just doing everything. You, know, you, know, so, you know what sort of hit me? Uh, there was a reaction, uh, a racist reaction uh, that people have to a black man period. And I think this was a horrible one, uh, obviously, to kill the man. To take it down to a much smaller level and, and about playing soccer, you know, I grew up in this lily white town and, and um, didn't play with any people of color, basically. I played in the town next to me, uh, which had a great team, and, and two African-American players. They were American guys. And playing with them, and when they were my teammates, finally, there was racial incidents, not once in a while, but every game, every single game, somebody would say something to them. And what I noticed was, you know, I had this Irish, you know, temper and mouth, and I could mouth off and, and you know, basically start shit. And there would be a kind of a normal reaction. If my one friend, Derek, uh, started to mouth off like that, because he was a tall black guy, oh my God, the reaction was so much more uh, incendiary. Everybody was like, yeah, uh, you know, mouthy black guy. And the reaction was just different. So I think what happens is what people have to gut check is that why do you have, admit this preconceived notion that you have that is wrong and misguided. Um, so, that was, so that was my take on it. We're sort of like, stop reacting this way. At least admit it. You know, because we have a certain segment of this population that says, oh, racism's over. It's like, oh, you are got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, so so there's no, it's just my observation as a player. I suddenly noticed my teammates who I'm going to back up. Uh, they were, you know, people were saying racial things to them. And I was like, I, it was it opened my eyes, Desmond. Yeah, I think that the situation with George Floyd and his death has really opened the eyes. I've been receiving a lot of uh, phone calls from former teammates, uh, some mm -hmm. international uh, who have been here for years, others who have grown up with and so forth and uh, have, have coached their kids as well. Um, it is a wake-up call um, in the sense that I think it's wise for us to first identify that there are some prejudgments. So it's a, there's an issue of prejudice first that doesn't always translate 
into racism per se, but they're prejudgments that are construed by way of whatever the backgrounds of those individuals might be. And then that can set them up for a reaction towards an individual. And thus then that can reflect a sort of bias, if you will, and mm -hmm. then bleed into, uh, by way of George Floyd, uh, potentially the actions that were taking, taken um, in hand there and then subsequently his death to be yeah, able to yeah. be labeled as uh, the potential of racism. So I think there's some progressive stages there, but I, I would say this before I turn it over. The big thing that the conversations I've been having most recently deal with the context of the question always comes, what is, is there systemic racism? And what is systemic racism? And so my only answer to that has been that the structures that are in place within the concept of the government of the United States is set up for one group, people group in this case, to have advantages. And in those advantages, the police system that has been in place has been there to reinforce those advantages for one people group over a series of other minority people groups. So that for me is systemic racism. And so what's played out from that are the aspects of prejudgments, then biases, whether conscious or unconscious, that could lead into actions that pertain to a racist bent. In this case, you know, we're, we're looking at the, uh, the death of George Floyd, which is only reflected right, right. of a lot of lives that have been taken, a list of lives that have been taken that we're aware of, relative to the fact that we have, you know, smartphones. Um, yeah, look, yeah. it's on tape. It's on tape. People still well, let me let me just let me just say, even on tape, I, I was a part of you know uh, Rodney King. I was out in Cal California in '92 when the verdict came through. A year later, from the video that clearly captures everything that was going on, or that could go right. on and had gone on in the streets, and so you had you had it right there, and then those guys were not convicted. And then yeah, I was there, I, I, I was there in LA when they were burning down LA, I was there. So, I was there too, Desi, it was scary. It was a scary time and um, people asked for justice, but it didn't seem to hold. And um, I guess, you know, what I was talking about with the small, sort of small aggressions and preconceived culminates at the end of the day in the murder of someone like Mr. Floyd uh, in, in those actions in bigger ways. Uh, Sam, you had, a, you had a question for Desi? Yeah, um, Desmond, I'm curious what your reaction has been to the soccer world's, um, you know, take, especially abroad, to the death of George Floyd, you know, the, the protests, the solidarity that we're seeing in games in Europe, and, uh, you know, why you think this moment has resonated like the way it has? I think it's resonated um, within the soccer community, which is a global aspect, uh, because, you know, what's occurred here in blatant fashion has been broadcast internationally because of all the platforms, social platforms that we have. And then that really spikes some of the personal experiences other players have had in the various countries. So if we were to say that even in the soccer world, that you know everybody's singing Kumbaya, everybody loves everybody, everybody's getting a fair chance, uh, all you have to do is you know reflect on what Raheem Sterling was talking about in regards to the fact that, you know, top players who have come out of the game, black players in this case, compared to the white players who have come out of the game, who have accomplished the same things in the world of soccer at the highest level are not given the same opportunities to step into high level coaching jobs. And so that's why I think the, re the reaction has been what it is, is that, um, yeah, they haven't experienced or even seen deaths like they've seen in regards to George Floyd, but it, it, it's reminiscent of some of the quote unquote injustices that exist today um, in the world of soccer. And, be, and this is beyond, you know, the quote unquote level playing field where you go out on the field and no matter what, you know, race you are, creed you are, religion you are, uh, sex you are, uh, because the game is played and you have to prove yourself and everybody can see it. So if you step away from that, what are your opportunities in this world of soccer having excelled at the highest level? You step away for others, it's automatic. Boom, you got a job. Right, but right. For, for a minority, you know, you've got to be, you don't get the opportunity to fail 
um, you know, you can't fail. You fail and that was your chance and it's over. You're not going to get another chance at the highest level. <laughs> I would love to see I would love to see Obama making some of the mistakes and miscues that Trump is making right now. It would be, it'd be a hell to pay, you know? So, you know, but every week, unfortunately, Desi, when, when teams are playing, uh, we cover sort of the racist aspects that happen here. And what's, I, I feel unfortunate is America usually led the way in democracy and everything. And we were not a, we were moving towards a more perfect union. We were not perfect. And race is one of the, one of the things to say the country has to work on to say the least. So um, it, it's, uh, it, it feels tough at this time. Like it almost feels like the European players are leading us in a way. It's been really nice to see, I think, because yes, racism is a, a global issue. And, the way America goes, the world follows. They have followed in the past. So um, I like when we set the example. And in this case, it was a really bad example, unfortunately. Uh, Grail, you had a question for, for Des. I did. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Silky Smooth. Um, <laughs> the, uh, as someone who grew up in uh, D.C., uh, I was just curious uh, what it's been like watching the massive protests down there, as well as the uh, leadership of Mayor Bowser. How, how inspiring that, that's been for you? Uh, it's been tremendous. I mean, when I was in high school, I actually partook of a walk or a protest walk for the, uh, the recognition of Martin Luther King's birthday. And uh, Stevie Wonder had put together a song and um, was part of the actual protest, the march that we had down there in DC. I left from you know Columbia, Maryland. I think I was a freshman in high school at the time. This is back in, 7980 and um, and so what you're old dude you're old man <laughs> <laughs> proud of it baby proud of it no problem me too. I, got some me history. Too. I got some history there i can uh, reflect on like real history exactly and it brings me back to yes uh, the protest marches that are going on in the city and and the stance of the mayor has been tremendous um, and she's not shied away from the fact that the police department in dc um has its limitations it has its faults but uh beside that she's saying okay that true that being true we we cannot just dismantle and that's been the the cry you know defund the police and uh in some shape form or fashion you know like up in minneapolis let's just you know burn it to the ground and and rebuild it and so let's understand that in the call for defunding the issue is there's monies from the federal government coming to all of the principalities, um, or police, sorry, all of the police um, Municipal agencies, agencies, agencies across the country. And so then it becomes a matter of the allocation of those funds. Right. So the defunding is really dealing with the reallocation or the better allocation of funds or even the reallocation of funds to better train police. That could be the issue of defunding. Um, right. So, I think I think, yeah, I think Desi, Desi, I think they, you know, and there's, they're working on changing that word defund because it it's, uh, doesn't sound right. James Clyburn was on this morning and he, right. he said it, reallocation of resources because Correct. basically he said, you or need ref to police, or reform. Yeah, reform, reform, right. Yeah. yeah right. Any of those, any of those terms are great, but when you're on the streets and you're marching and, and, you know, you got the blowhorns and, um, here's the rallying cry. It's easy to say defund the police. And everybody's on it. Yeah, yeah, let's de you know defund the police um, because you saw what happened, and this is what we got to do. And it's almost like a knee-jerk uh, reaction, yeah. not to minimize any of the any of the points. My my issue is that yes, we need to protest, we need to march to press the issues, and in that you're going to leave yourself open for all of the dissenters to say, "Oh, this is crazy. They're crazy." To the points of. Um, the rioters to the point of looters as a one group of all protesters that are on the street. And so we have to you know, wade through that. But I think that the mayor of, of DC has done a great job in terms of standing up for the city uh, in light of the fact that you know, the White House does exist within the confines of the city of DC. And the, the, the issue is broader than the city of DC in, an, in and of itself. It is a national issue. And so she's taking the steps that she needs to take for her city, like every other mayor and every other city official, council member for every county that they represent that have to deal with the system that is in place to, to protect, yes, and serve the community, right. but in context with the community. 
not separate on the side. And every story that comes out is not indicative of every situation across the United States. It isn't. What happens yeah, in Minneapolis yeah, yeah. is not the same thing that's happening in DC. It's not the same thing that's happen, happening in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. They're similar. There can be similar stories, but everything is not the same. So we have to have to really be poignant in our statements, but also open to understand that this is a big country. Yeah. It's a very big country. There is a lot of history within this country, and not every story is a universal story. Not every incident is a universal incident. Right. No, they're not all captured. They're not all captured on tape, right? I think it would. Just be, and you know, to say to reallocate, I think instead of defund the police, like you said, it's a nice catchy little phrase. You can't have everybody saying, you know, reallocate resources to dispense the funds to a more proactive, positive, you know. So, but I, I think uh, your point is right. And you're almost talking about states' rights or about uh, basically each community is different and needs to be protected and served in a different way. And I think uh, for most in the black communities, uh, they do not feel that. that is, they are not there to protect and serve. And, and that's all that's being uh, questioned at this point. People need the police. They just to need to uh, to sort of uh, recalibrate what they're doing. Uh, Grail, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say to that point, Flinny, um, you know, Desmond uh, Camden, New Jersey is held yeah. up as a great model because it's kind of a community policing model, but it's a population of, I think, 65,000 people, you know, which is vastly different from a lot of other major cities. So certainly elements of what has worked in Camden could work elsewhere, but to your point, one size does not necessarily fit all, and we need to be nimble and, and uh, just take these progressive viewpoints and adapt them, you know, to the situations that exist in each city, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, 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 allocate them or utilize them accordingly relative to, you know, best practices in one city might be useful in another, uh, but from the federal government context, then yes, some sort of reform needs to occur. And so I think these protests are important to shed light on the fact that the, from a federal perspective, there are some issues that are universal or do affect the whole nation. So that needs to be addressed and thus then some policies need to be put in place and it has to come from the top, push down, and then we can get into the uh, the particulars of every city or every county and whether or not some of these other things that worked over here could work in our particular, you know, city. Sam, you had a question for Des? Uh, yeah, Desmond, I'm wondering, um, as, a, as a coach at a historically black college, you know, first of all, how are you communicating with your players during the pandemic? And then how are you, you know, reaching out and communicating to them with all that's going on at this moment? Yeah, so my situation at an HBCU, Historically Black College and University, is that, you know, it's a very, very small, tight community. So I've taken my cues from the president of the university, first and foremost, as he communicates to not only the faculty, staff, and then the uh, student body. And from pulling from that to say that, you know, we are engaged with what is happening here in Nashville, to then reach out to my players to say, hey, you know, Here's what's going on from the university. We are going to be in session come this fall. Our conference, which is not NCAA, but um, our national body is NAIA. And so we won't start until September 1st. So that means our preseason is pushed back by a good two weeks. And in that, we are not gonna have a 20 game season, but we're gonna have 14. So each of the uh, colleges, as well as the sports, uh, all grappling with, just like every state and city, um, are, are grappling with the effects of one, COVID-19. Then behind that, obviously, this situation in regards to all of my guys at a HBCU are, we're all black. You know, African-American, if you want to use the politically correct term, I'm just an old school guy. I was using black. So... I think black is coming back. Well, I think black, black, you know, black's, black's the new I black. I can't do nothing with it except walk in it, baby. So you're silky smooth when you walk. So that's what counts. There it is right there. So I'm going to go ahead with that and, and, and also use African-American. So I have no issues. 
the problem in America is that we have to, you know, identify ourselves by way of quote unquote black, white, and so forth. This is a little sidebar. It's a little rabbit trail. Just stay with me. I happen right. to be an American. I'm an American. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, I'd rather just say I'm an American, but yeah. it is what it is. So for my guys, I always started with them in season and saying, look, we have to be at the highest level. There is a perception of who you are when you walk down the street, right. no fault of yours. Mm -hmm. And now the magnitude of that earlier statement to my players has played out in the context of everything that's going on relative to the death of George Floyd. Now, as we move forward, here are the sensitivities that we reflected on earlier, and we need to be prepared moving forward. Are you engaged? My piece is, even to my family, um, just like I would speak to my players, you need to be engaged. You need to be a part of the protest. I have no problems with you being a part of the protest, but let's understand why we're protesting. Don't just get out there to get a photo op or put stuff on your social media platforms for the sake of saying, I was out here, I was out here marching. Know what you're marching for and know what the leadership is actually saying and then decide whether or not it jives with you so that you can support that. Right. There needs to be activity and support, but we need to do it within a concerted effort such that there is effective change, not only for ourselves, but for the nation in totality. And we as uh, members of an HBCU from a historical context within America have always been on the front forefront of that type of change as it pertains to race relations in America. So it's important for us to remain engaged, actively engaged by way of protest, but let's understand why we're doing it. You know, um, you made a lot of good points there. One thing that I'm curious about, um, you're at a historical black college, when I think just about every player of color that I played with Desmond, you know, early in my career, very few African-Americans uh, that were playing soccer at that time. All of our old teammates, you know, Ronnie Basile, Sammy Joseph, Ron Dufresne, they all had like either Haitian or Caribbean roots. Um, yeah. What is the, you know, I know the work that you've been trying to do to, to get the Amer African-American black community to sort of embrace our game a little bit. How is the, that coming along? Do you, do you see bigger numbers playing now, like guys on your team? From the states, yeah. Well, there there are bigger numbers, um, but I will say this, and 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 it's it's indicative of what the society is by way of soccer in America. And what I mean by that is simply this: that the sport in this country is a pay-to-play model. So, yeah. the sport, even as I encountered the sport, I I had moved from basically D.C. to the suburbs, and upon moving to the suburbs, I encountered soccer, and the sport has remained in the suburbs. So, if there's more African-Americans participating is because there are more African-Americans, African more black dudes in the suburbs. There are more black families in the suburbs. That, that's the reflection. And so the work that myself and, uh, and Jimmy, and Jimmy, you know, being from Milwaukee, he got picked up, brought to the suburbs to participate uh, and his brothers and some of his friends. So our work was really intent on Jimmy, say Jimmy passed away. Yeah. Tell tell the people who Jimmy is. He was a, a, a you know role model for all of us, really. Yeah, Jimmy was uh, Jimmy Banks. You know, played yeah. for the uh, U.S. World Cup team, and we played on the uh, World Cup together. He was my roommate. He was my best man in my my wedding, and um, he died last year uh, from cancer, I believe it was. And mm -hmm. his legacy was that he had gone back into his community in Milwaukee and started a program called Simba's football club uh, for the express purpose of introducing the sport to an urban um, clientele, if you will. And so that lives on. His legacy lives on through the Simbas. And some of the players that worked or that played for him are now running that organization. That's great. And so when you ask the question, are there more African-Americans playing the sport of soccer? The answer is yes. Who are they? They are suburbans. Uh, the sport right. in this country is suburban. And so from an urban aspect, uh, what I do here in East Nashville is I integrate uh, kids that are, you know, living in what we call Section 8 uh, housing, which is an urban area for, you know, uh, public assistant housing. And we have African refugees that live in those communities. And now we have not only those African 
refugees, but we have African-American black kids that are now migrating to the sport because these kids are in the neighborhood playing the sport. And then That's we also bring them uh, with the other, uh, some suburbanites and others that are urban that are white on the same teams. And so we've been doing that for about four years. And my hope is that with Fisk, that would be like the top of the uh, pyramid, if you will, from an inception of soccer at the grassroots level, recreation to that of travel, to that of going to high school, to that of possibly going to college, not necessarily having to come to Fisk, but just the vision of being able to use this sport to get an education paid for, here's the route. And so this opportunity is, is right there for you, whether you come to an HBCU or whether you go to any other college or university within the country. So if you develop those players, you want the best ones to come to Fisk, I would imagine. <laughs> hey, you know, also you, a lot of like the urban outreach, you know, Ed Foster Simeon with the U.S. Um, Soccer Foundation is they're trying to build those, those fields in the cities to give kids a place to play. And I think you talked about the pay for play model, which has sort of limited the development of the player, I believe, because, uh, you know, they're not out there playing with the ball at the feet. They're in a van driving around, uh, you know, trying to win trophies instead of playing the game. So uh, this is all, all good stuff. Um, let, let's talk a little bit quickly um, about players going back out on the field. Would you be comfortable going back out uh, right now, COVID situation? Yes, uh, within the context of what, you know, the Bundesliga has been able to do. I think the Bundesliga, you know, Germans historically are, are known as being highly efficient. And so their protocols were put in place. They were the very first professional league globally to go back into, to, you know, competition at the high levels. And they've, you know, done it in front of no one uh, outside of television. And they have about 100 or so right. people in the stadiums at the time. And so they have gone to or through, I believe, three weekends of no new cases of COVID-19 relative to their activities on the field. So by way of that, other countries have opened up. And I think that's going to matriculate down to what you're asking me. Yes, I think that we can go back out there, but it has to be done from a perspective of, you know, the social distancing to a degree and also um, no fans, or if the fans are there, meaning moms and dads and grandpas and so forth, then they're six feet apart. And I think we can, you know, we can do it. If you're gonna ask me whether or not we can do it relative to, you know, the surging numbers that we see right now because of, one, Memorial Day weekend, everybody's close on the beaches and so forth, to that of the protests, everybody's close, even if they have masks, then I would say no. But if you're gonna do it in a controlled environment, then yes. Which seems like they're, they're trying to do. And by the way, you're gonna to have to explain what matriculate means to Grail, I think, <laughs> lost it. But Grail, Grail, you have a question? <laughs> yeah, Des, so FIFA's response and the various global leagues response to racism over the years has been, hey, let's spend a ton of money on an ad campaign, Let's have people wear T-shirts. Let's hold hands. Let's, you know, have kids walk out onto the field. Let's, you know, commission a song about uh, getting rid of racism. And now it feels like finally, with all the players mobilized, we might actually get somewhere. Because it wasn't going to get anywhere with the white dudes in the FIFA offices, you know, doing things like that, but not actually taking action. So I'm just curious, does it feel different to you? Mm. Slightly. Okay. You know, it's going to be different when, and I'll, I'll just go back to Raheem Sterling, because I know that I've experienced the same things on this side in regards to stepping away from the game. And thus, what are my opportunities within the game and, and again, you know, I'm in America, but the same thing was holding true in England, uh, as he's identified. So if that's happening relative to guys stepping away from the game and not being able to get, you know, the first level of entry, and that would be coaching, uh, imagine what it's like in regards to other administrative positions, general managers, um, administrators that are in UEFA, in FIFA, matriculating to the top you know, playing the political game to get in positions of being selected to run whatever. There, there's no representation there. To your point, it's, it's the white guy that's, that's sort of, you know, making decisions to look inclusive or to, to set up the game to be more inclusive on a global stage when the game is highly inclusive on the global stage. But behind the scenes, 
it hasn't changed. So all of that sounds great, you know, kick out racism and all that other stuff. Yeah, okay, that's cute. But, you know, real change is when, real change is, and not to say that this is really gonna happen, but real change is you step away from your position and you actively go out and find somebody that can replace you at the table where you're making decisions on the future of the game. And those people that you bring to the table, whether or not you abdicate your position and somebody replaces you, or more importantly, you, you are more inclusive to bring people to the table um, to make change, or at least bring suggestions to the table to make change, then I can say, yeah, then I think that things are changing. And let me just say this, you know, humbly. There is an innocence in the sense of, meaning that I don't think there's overt, deliberate racism in the game. I think that that does exist. Don't get me wrong, I think it exists. Mm -hmm. um, and that more so from a societal context, when you go into areas who have not been forced to deal with the, uh, the diversity of, of, glo of a global society. Mm -hmm. So the innocence that I'm re really reflecting on is, let's say, you know, Kevin, okay, you brought up a good point. So you played in a town that was primarily all white and you went down the street and played against and had some players come in from the outside that was a part of your team and then there was some diversity, okay? Right. So let's just imagine that you never played against other groups or other groups never came into your neighborhood. Now, you go through your whole career as a player, then you migrate into coaching. So when you decide to start selecting players for your team, innocently, you're going to reflect on who you played against and who you played with mm -hmm. to make right. a decision on the player as to whether or not that player is a good player or a bad player. That's innocent. And that's reflective of the environment or the community that you engaged in. That's an innocent approach. Is it diverse? No, it's no. not. Right. And it's predicated off of the environments you come from. Not because you have some inherent intent on not picking the black guy. You're just not, hey, I'm just not used to the black guy. I've never seen a black guy. He doesn't remind me of anybody. He's okay, but the guy I played with or the guy I played against I remember him and he reminds me of, he doesn't remind me of any of those guys. So I might not pick him. Not right. point then, then you have your, your pre, you have your preconceived notions. Like, you know, with soccer, you're like, I know the Colombians play this sort of style. The Uruguayans this way, the Haitians this way. So you sort of start to digest it a little bit. Correct. So look, look, I, I hope that this is different this time. Martin Luther King said that this, this country has a very short term memory. It, it has a 10 day window where it remembers things. I hope this is a case where we really uh, you bring about some change in this country. I'm, I'm hopeful, Desmond, and I think you're a big reason for hope in this country, people like yourselves and, and um, you know, everyone, uh, all the faces that were at the protests, uh, white, black, every race, religion, ethnicity, let's, let's, let's bring this home, man. Let's put it in the back of the net. Desmond Armstrong, uh, head coach at Fisk University, uh, a, a good friend uh, from way back who's doing a lot of good work. We appreciate you for being on Over the Ball. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, that was great getting caught up with the silky smooth Desmond Armstrong. Uh, the man is, is actually making a difference. So uh, it's, it's great to talk to him. What do you think, guys? I, his, I mean, his candor was in, incredibly refreshing. And again, he's lived it. We haven't lived it. He's lived right. it every day of his life. And his sons are having to live it. And uh, it's, uh, it was just great hearing his, his honest take on things. And uh, let, let's just hope that uh, even you can, you can uh, hear the hesitation in his voice, though, right? When we were asking him about if this is different. And, mm -hmm. and you, you can understand why there would be hesitation because there have been a lot of times where we thought things were going to change and they didn't so let's hope this yeah. time is different yeah. you know that remind remember like the saturday night live skit where dave Chappelle and chris rock are watching the, the presidential election oh with yeah a bunch of white people who <laughs> yes. are used to watching Huff, huffington post and they're like i can't believe it and the brothers are like oh you can't believe what you can't believe you've been letting us <laughs> it's very funny so, uh, but yeah, like ho hopefully this does last. I, I feel like it, it can maybe make a difference. I think people are also talking about it and to see 
the sea of, of uh, as I said to Desmond, uh, mixed races, faces, uh, ethnicities, everybody there for just what is right, the right thing to do. So, yeah, glad then, it's, uh, it's good to have people like him involved in the college game too, because as we've oh, talked yeah. about last week, I mean, there's a real lack of diversity um, at the college level. Yeah, and I really liked that point that he made, that he is shaping young men how to go out and live lives, which is what the game is supposed to be about. It's not about becoming a professional soccer player. It's about developing good people. Uh, you know, the Greeks used to say, what, mind, body, spirit, and sort of, you know, athletics were a big part of that, to, you know, unity and to build better better people. So um, he's always led by example, and I'm glad that he's, uh, he's teaching others. He's given back. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, what do we got, guys? Let's uh, before we get going here. Um, you got a quiz for us? What do you have? Uh, uh, yeah, I got a. Well, let's look ahead to this weekend first of all, because um, games in Spain and Italy are coming back. Um, oh yeah. Let's see. We're recording this on Thursday, so today uh, La Liga is getting underway with Sevilla Real Betis, which is the Seville derby. Um, so. Derby. Uh, and then tomorrow, Friday, <laughs> so when you're listening to this, uh, the Coppa Italia is coming back. So soccer getting uh, underway in Italy with Juve uh, Milan on Friday, and then Napoli. Sam will be Sam, Sam, will, Sam, no, Sam will be inside his TV tomorrow. Exactly. He'll be inside it, licking the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's any tubes anymore. That's old. <laughs> licking, licking the semiconductors in his television. <laughs> so yeah, so look forward to that. Serie A comes back next week. Um, all these matches will, of course, be played in empty stadiums. So for contrast, interesting that rugby is coming back in New Zealand this week with full stadiums. Uh, yeah. So well, New Zealand are, is is the standard by which all other countries will be measured with COVID, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. That woman, that so. prime minister, man, really did a great job. The rock star. I, she. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, yes. I wish we could hire political figures. You know, like they, tra you know, trading coaches and stuff. I would love to bring over some other world leaders here. Uh, so I had I had one more reflection, just a couple of stats to throw at you guys. Um, watching the Bundesliga, which I don't do very often, um, I've just been blown away by how good Robert Lewandowski is and his scoring oh, yeah. record this well, season. Pure finisher, um, man. Just to break it down, he's got 30 goals in 28 Bundesliga matches, 11 goals in six Champions League matches, and five goals now in three German Cup matches. So 46 goals in 39 <sighs> overall appearances. Um, and I was curious to know if he was, you know, the front runner for the Ballon d'Or or not. And he's actually the sixth favorite, according to the bookmakers, um, behind Messi and Ronaldo, then De Bruyne, Mbappe, and Mane. And, Why uh, is that, guys? Why does he well, not get that respect? What are I mean, if you want to look at the stats, you know, Messi, 35 appearances, 28 goals, 15 assists. Ronaldo, 33 appearances, 25 goals, 3 assists. De Bruyne, 34 appearances, 9 goals, 18 assists. Mbappe, uh, 34 appearances, 30 goals, 9 assists. And Mane, 40 appearances, 16 goals, 8 assists. So if you want to count points like they do in hockey yeah. over here, um, you know, Lewandowski is the leader by far. 39 appearances, 46 goals, 5 assists, 51 points. So. Uh, you know, yeah, he's just my, a, what's your theory, Grail? No, no, I was just going to say my measurement of player, like the great players, is who makes – the players around him better. And my contention that Messi is the best is, I think, it, it, you know, is basically confirmed by these stats because he's got 28 goals and 15 assists. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, he's not only scoring goals, he's basically, <coughs> excuse me, contributing to goals at a high rate. Whereas somebody like a Ronaldo, 25 goals, three assists. And to me, that's always been my rap on Ronaldo is it's always about Ronaldo Ronaldo just scoring goals, but Ronaldo not setting up a lot of yeah. teammates. And again, that's why I will always worship at the altar of Messi, because I just feel like not only one of the best passers in the world, but also one of the best scorers. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with that, with Messi being the front runner. But I think if Ronaldo is going to be, you know, the second favorite, then Lewandowski certainly should be at that level. You know, if yeah. not oh, he, I put him in front of Ronaldo, Sam, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also maybe a style of play too. That you know, Lewandowski's a pure you know sniper. He's just a pure finisher, and is not that flamboyant in displays of of skill. You know, like maybe the opposite of of Neymar. Because yeah. I would take a I would take a Lewandowski anytime over a Neymar who's dancing yeah, on the cool. ball while you're trying to run off it. Eh, forget yeah. it. So that's uh, true. Not as flamboyant. 
right. so I got a quick quiz for you guys before we go. Ah, um, quick quiz. Get your number two pencil out, Graham. Very sadly, <laughs> I would say, um, Euro 2020 was supposed to start um, today, June 12th. So, um, so obviously Oy, pushed back God. for a year. Um, makes, my, makes my summer every year when I, when I have that. But, uh, well, every four years. Uh, so quick. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah, yeah, that and well, the World Cup, you know, and then the Women's World Cup. We yeah. each have something to look forward to in the yeah, summer. That's true. That's true. Uh, okay, so just quick three questions. Uh, number one, is this the first time in history the Euro has been postponed? Yes or no? I'm going to say no. It's kind of a trick question, don't you think, Graham? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe. How long, how long have the Euro has been going on? What year? I mean, I can't reveal that. That might be the next. Oh, you can't year. reveal it. I can't believe it. I would say that it has never been postponed. Correct. It has never been postponed. So, second ah. question: What year did the first European champion uh, championship <laughs> take place? There it is. I'm clear. Okay. Points. Let me let me think about this. I'm going to say now. I got to do my math correctly here. So it was supposed to be 2016. 12, oh, listen. We got to listen to you, computer ramblings <laughs> in your head. Yeah, oh, well, God. oh, God, I'm going to say it was, I was going to say 19... You got less than a minute. 1998. I, I, I can't remember which years it was. We're running out of time. Now. What do we got, Sam? What's late, the answer? Late 90s, late 90s. 1960. Oh, oh you're way off. You're over two. I thought it was far more recent. All right. Hell. All right, we're going to end the show on a wrong answer from Grail Hallett. <laughs> over two <laughs> this you. week. We oh want to thank God. our guest, Desmond Crazy. Armstrong, uh, making a difference out there, as I said before, the coach of Fisk University. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Soccer America and Ticket IQ. For Grail Hallett, Sam Griswold, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB.